Welcome to the Friday edition of Unexpected Points, your podcast for all things NFL analytics. Today, I'm going to dive into the Browns-Broncos matchup for last night and the performance of running backs don't matter King to Ernest Johnson. We're going to preview the Week 7 slate, focusing specifically on a few best bets that I have for this weekend. And plus, I'm going to have some commentary on an enlightening ESPN Daily interview with Bob Volgaris, who was the former director of quantitative R&D at the Dallas Mavericks. There's a lot to pick away from that interview when it comes to incentives, alignment, how these franchises work, and how nerds like Bob, myself, and a lot of you guys out there can be more effective within these organizations. All right, let's get to it. Okay, welcome, welcome, everyone. Uh, First, let's get into last night before we get into the other subjects. Uh, Before I get into anything, I'm just going to hit you really quickly. 25% off PFF, promo code unexpected. I know I hit you with that all the time, so you guys know about that, but we want to make sure everyone has the ability to get into a lot of our tools for that low, low price. All right, so Thursday night football, as I mentioned, the storyline, the big storyline at least in uh, my world, would be the performance of Ernest Johnson. He is their third string running back. Of course, the Cleveland Browns have the best duo and the best running game in the NFL right now at the top with uh, Kareem Hunt, who was their kind of secondary running back, but a very, very capable running back, and Nick Chubb. So first, let's just, you know, larger picture on the game, okay? So 17, 14, The Browns win. It was somewhat a tale of two halves. It was um, 10-0 at halftime. It felt like 30 to nothing almost at halftime. Uh, The line on this game was Browns minus one and a half. It came all the way down from five and a half. Now, how much of that was Baker being replaced by Case Keenum? I don't know. It seems like a lot. I think in our system, we have it somewhere around two points as a difference between those two quarterbacks. I know I heard a friend of the pod, Rufus Peabody of Massey Peabody Analytics and the confirmed third best gambler in America. Um, He, uh, sports better, I should say, in America. He thought it was somewhere around one and a half points. So not a lot. So the fact that it moved four points here, I'm assuming there were other factors that played in to this beyond just the uh the injury and the fact that Baker wasn't playing maybe the running backs being outplayed into this and again we'll we'll talk about how this was almost too good for running backs don't matter uh truthers like myself um i did not have a play on this so this was not someone something that i felt like there was a good bet on especially when cleveland was much higher earlier in the week uh i can see how some people bet on cleveland here and it looks like you know they only won by 3 points so therefore, the one and a half line, which it finished that you could have lost some of the ones where you bet on earlier in the week when it was higher and you would have won as it fell down lower. The reality is this was solid. This was a solid play. This was a solid bet. Even at five and a half, they really should have covered that there. Now, again, my adjusted scores here would have had the Browns winning by about six and a half, seven points on this one. Reason being that. Success rate plays a bigger factor than anything else here. The Browns had a 56% success rate during this game versus only 46 
for the Broncos. And that Browns number, that 56% success rate, that's a big, big number. Now, it didn't translate into a ton of points. And if you look at their EPA per play, it was around 0.17 versus the Broncos at 0.1. And the reason it didn't translate into a lot of points for the Browns in particular, and even for the Broncos, is just a lack of big plays. Really were not a lot of big plays that happened in this game. Um, And there were a lot of third down conversions for the Browns, but they needed all of those third down conversions. A lot of short third down conversions. There weren't a ton of huge conversions. Now they did have the fourth and three conversion, which ended up being huge. I'll talk about some of the thinking behind that. Some of the poor thinking behind that a little bit later in the wrap up of this game Uh, to dig further into this. Let's talk about the journalist Johnson. We have to talk about uh, running backs. Don't matter here. Third string running back, of course, Um, And when you look at this guy, he almost embodies why you don't need to pay up for running back performance. Now, when Nick Chubb had his contract extension in the offseason, I said I was fine with it. Again, I talked about this somewhat with Derrick Henry last week. I said I was fine with that one, too. You know, it's one of those things where if you want to be ideological about it and you want to truly, truly maximize value, I would not argue against those deals, right? I would not argue that those are, it's wrong to say you should pass on those deals. I think it's closer to being right. That's closer to being right, saying you should pass on those deals than it is to say that it's going to be a value to sign those contracts. But I fall into this middle space where I'm okay in all directions, depending upon the cap situation of the team. The Browns, a little bit more challenging because they already have the most expensive offense in the NFL without Baker on a veteran contract either. Okay, well, let's get into Dernis Johnson. So why does he embody running backs don't matter? 4840 that he had coming out. The guy was not even an undrafted free agent signing coming out of college. He was invited to the Saints camp. This is an extremely productive running back in college also. He was invited to the Saints camp that year, never signed. Uh, the Saints rookie camp never signed. He was a stud for the the defunct AFF, which a lot of people may may remember him from. And then he signed with the Browns in 2019. So his contract, and he doesn't get the vet minimum because he's new to the NFL. So his contract, three years, it'll expire after this year. So congratulations to him if he's going to parlay this this week or two of production into some more money. Uh, three years. $600,000 per season. That's how much he's being paid right now versus Nick Chubb, who's you know, up in the $13, $14 million a year type of category. 146 yards on only 22 attempts, 6.6 yards per carry, four missed tackles on those 22 attempts. So that's pretty strong. Uh, it's around that 0.2-ish forced missed tackle rate, which is not at the top, top of the league, but it's pretty high there. And again, that's an attribute that we're giving to the running back himself. But the more important stat, I think, when we're talking about how much value the running back is bringing in an offense like this, like the Browns, who have one of the best running offenses in the NFL, is the fact that he was getting 3.2 yards before contact. Now, he was adding an additional three yards after contact, 3.4 yards after contact, which is great. But still, he didn't have to break long runs because that Browns offensive front was dominating and he could get the 3.2 yards uh, before even being touched. If you look at the team as a whole running the ball here, again, without their two stud running backs, they're two of the most important offensive players that they have, right? They had the highest rushing grade of the season. 
in this game for us. They had uh, their EPA per play, so their efficiency running the ball was a 90th percentile, was right in line with what they have done the rest of the season. So hitting all those different metrics. What they didn't have is they didn't have explosive runs in this game, meaning runs that went for 20, 30 yards, runs that went for long touchdowns, which you did often see with Nick Chubb and to a lesser degree with Kareem Hunt. So that could be the one differentiating factor that you don't get from a true replacement level running back like Darnus Johnson. But how important is that, right? When you, you, you're going to hope to get those explosive runs, but an explosive run is just going to happen much, much less often than an explosive passing play. Um, if you think about Darnus Johnson, another interesting data point here is this is not totally an anomaly for him. He had 95 yards on 13 carries week four of last season playing against the turnstile of that year, Dallas Cowboys defensive front. And I could see how people will talk themselves into Johnson having attributes that fit in with this system. I'm already seeing the name of good old Alf, Alfred Morris out there as a comparison. For those who know, Morris was a UDFA who ended up falling into a starting role and led the league, I believe, in rushing yards as a rookie. Again, not a fast guy, a cutback type of runner, good vision for whatever that means. Uh, but he was another undrafted free agent who ended up doing extremely well in this system. So even if you can point to Darnus Johnson as having attributes that fit into the system, so even if we're saying that he might be better in some ways than your average replacement level running back, I don't think that invalidates the theory that these guys are replaceable in the system because obviously the NFL is not valuing this. In a system that is growing throughout the NFL, a lot of people are using this Shanahan type of system throughout the NFL. Even though that's true, you're going to have guys like Darnus Johnson because they're not as fast, because they're not seen as being as athletic as your top, top running backs. They're going to continue to be readily available going forward. Look at Elijah Mitchell, and he's someone who's been productive, though injured, as a rookie for the San Francisco 49ers. Again, these guys are just available. It's not that they're not talented. So I think that that's the thing. We're not saying that untalented running backs can step in and do well. We're just saying there are lots and lots of talented running backs. There are lots of running backs for cheaper that you can get to fill certain roles in certain systems. And that's why Darius Johnson is our, you know, he's, he's our running back of the week here. I, I think that's pretty safe that he's going to be the nerds running back of the week for everyone uh, so far this year. There are a couple other plays I want to talk about that may have gone under the radar first before I get to the big fourth down call. And this one is, is really under the radar. This is just, it's not a huge thing here, but I love it from a strategic standpoint, right? Um, and that is that very near the very end of the game, the Browns were trying to run out the clock. So they got it under, they got it to, they got a first down with two minutes and change to go. And they ran it down to the two minute warning on the first play. So then they ran the clock all the way down. They ran it again. They got to, I don't remember what it was, uh, second and seven. They ran it again after running it all the way down. They got to third and two, but before they ran that third and two play, and you want to run the clock as far down as you possibly can, right? But the problem is, it's third and two. If you snap it with one second left to go, two seconds left to go, the, you know, the defense is kind of primed and ready to go right at that, at this, at that moment. So while I really love that Cleveland took a timeout here and looked like they were going to run a play. Now, it didn't end up working, and in fact, this weird thing happened on the next play where David Njoku got a, a legal motion call and a bonehead call, and there were a few of these bonehead calls which helped keep the score down for 
the um for the Browns in this game. Alignment mostly was the was the problem there. But the reason I love this is that number one, you maximize the time taken off the clock by by calling the timeout. Number two, you get up there and maybe you get them to jump in that circumstance where they're looking to jump right with one or two seconds left on the clock. And then you get the first down there without even having to run a play. And and but what ended up happening, of course, is they got this weird penalty on the next play. They would move back to third and seven. And then our stud running back, best running back in the NFL, Dearness Johnson, picked up eight yards and completed the game there. So I thought that was a really interesting and great use of a timeout. I mean, Stefanski, this guy, like he continues to have really great minor usages where you're getting free potential free win probability and free wins could have got a free closing out the game there, not having to convert that third and two by trying to draw them off sides there and then using the timeout because you're not going to need those timeouts. They had two timeouts remaining. You weren't going to need those, those timeouts in this game. There's basically no scenario under which you would have, you know, missed the field goal. And then the other team would have scored that you would have been had enough time there to really need two timeouts there at the end of the game. So there was no risk in using that timeout there. So I, I love that play by Stefanski. Again, a little thing, not, you know, the end of the world, not going to change or sway the game in all different directions, but a very little thing that I thought was great. Uh, the bigger thing is there's a really interesting dynamic that I saw, and I'm not trying to drag uh, this reporter too much. Although, I mean, maybe I'm dragging him a little bit here. And that's Jake Trotter, who is the ESPN, NFL, Nation, whatever they call their, their grouping of report, different beat reporters for the Cleveland Browns. And he was getting jabbed a bit by, uh, by, by a Cleveland fan talking about um, Cleve T.A., who you may see on, on Twitter. He has his own... Uh, He's a big Browns fan. He has his own uh, betting substack, I believe, which is pretty interesting. And he was jabbing Trotter about the fact that they went for this fourth and three and then converted. So just to give you the, the parameters, particulars here, this is when they were up by three points. It was in the third quarter, near the end of the third quarter. So the Browns are only up by three points. So if they kick the field goal there, they're six yards away. They're on the six yard line about the score. They kick the field goal there. They're up by six points, but again, it puts them in a position where maybe they can actually go down by a point. You're like, you're not extending the score of the game, right? So fourth and three, six yards away, they decide to go for it. Case Keenum has, goes back to pass, can't find anyone, scrambles, breaks a couple tackles, and, and luckily picks up the fourth down. But what was interesting about it is, uh, so they were, so Jake Trotter was getting some shit about this because he said, Oh, I thought you, I thought you said they should stop going for it in these situations. And his response, which I think was really interesting, and this kind of falls into a lot of this analytics talk. His response says he said, "I never said never said they should stop going for it. Said they need to start converting if they're going to keep going for it." There. So you know we have this a little bit backwards here. It's the thinking of you better get it if you're going to go for it. Well. Yeah, like if I knew I was going to go for it, if I knew when I was going to get it and I knew when I was going to fail, then that would be pretty easy to decide when, when you're going to go for it or not. And the reason that Stavansky has been so impressive this year, and this contrasts a little bit with Brandon Staley, what I mentioned about him, although I still believe in Staley, you know, he's getting heaped all this praise for going for it on fourth down all the time, but they're making it all the time, right? It's a little bit easier there. Stavansky had the opposite situation this year. Uh, the Browns, had going into this game had 16 fourth down conversion attempts, most in the NFL. 
They only converted on seven of those, and these are mostly short conversions that they were not converting on. They had negative 22 expected points that they, were, that they lost. So they lost 22 points, basically, not converting at a rate that you would have expected from that area. Again, the, the Chargers going into last week, at least, were off the charts on how many they had gained. So Stefanski's getting all of this, this shit for the fact that he's going for it and not converting these fourth downs. And of course, everyone, when you don't convert on fourth downs, everyone says, oh, it's the play call. Oh, it's the this. Oh, it's the that. The most important fundamental thing is going for it has been right. And Stefanski continued to go for it, even in this situation where I think, according to some models, they might not have said to go for it, but I think most said to go for it in this, in this circumstance. So he keeps on doing it even when the results aren't there because there's nothing fundamental about the Browns' offense, a great rushing offense, a success, high-success rate offense. There's nothing fundamental about this offense that would make you say they should not be able to convert these fourth downs. And often, you know, people point out to, well, they've had a poor conversion rate in the past, so maybe that is giving you some sort of signal. Listen, we have a much bigger data set of third and short, right? Third and short is a very similar type of situations. There's no indication there that the Browns are a bad team on third and short. They just have been unlucky on these fourth and short calls. So the fact that Stefanski is continuing to go for it proves not only a conviction, but being smart, being disciplined, sticking with the process. And battling, while battling, people like a, a, a supposedly knowledgeable beat reporter who's going to say, yeah, you can go for it, but only if you're making them. Only if you think you're going to make them should you go for it. Well, the thing is, you don't know in advance, right? You only know the probable odds of what you're modeling for your odds. And if that's telling you to go for it, you continue to go for it. You don't let a small sample. You don't let a situation where you've converted 7 of 16 and that's a failure versus if you had converted 10 of 16, it would have been a success so far on this season. Don't let that dissuade you from being great going forward because, and doing the right thing going forward, because that's how you win games like we saw the Browns and Kevin Stefanski win this game today. Last point on this game, Baker talk. Uh, I thought that... Case Keenum was good, and that's the whole reason you sign him to a big contract, right? As someone who can come in and can execute the offense. But he didn't do anything so spectacular, I don't think, and especially only scoring 17 points. Now, like I said, it was a high success rate offense, so that 17 points is a little more muted than what it actually was, you know, blocked kick, all that stuff. Um, but I don't think this is going to affect Baker too much and people's opinion on him. And we'll, we'll see. What it could do is, despite the fact they have 10 days of rest, he could be out again for their next game. And if Keenum has some big plays in those, he's just not a big play quarterback necessarily, but if he has some big plays in those, it might change around. If you look at his numbers on the game, despite how poorly it started, especially for Teddy Bridgewater, uh, Bridgewater and Keenum ended up being similar with about 0.2 EPA per play, which is a good number. But again, roughly in line with what the Browns were doing, running the ball. So basically a similar sort of formula to exactly what they would have done in this circumstance. All right, let's talk about DraftKings before we get into the week and my best bets for the week. DraftKings, uh, NFL fans are hungry for a big win this week. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, has you covered. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game. And if you do, you win $200 in free bets. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, it's that simple. If the sportsbook is not available yet in your state, 
DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prize all season long with the DraftKings Daily Sports Contest. Daily Fantasy Sports Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at $1 million in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game and win $200 in free bets. If they win, you win. If they win, you win. With promo code PFF at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wagered. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, let's get into the week. Get into the week. Uh, the previews. Okay, this week I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm not going to go through every game. So you can assume that my predicted scores are fairly close to the lines on the games that I'm not going to cover here because I I want to talk about this Bob Volgaris, Haralabob situation at the end. And plus I want to go into maybe a little bit more detail on the ones that I actually have plays on here. And I'm sometimes I'm retreading themes that I went over as far as the previews talking about these teams. So I don't want to retread as much as possibly can. Okay. So my morning best bet, and I like this one a lot is, uh, in the Washington football team at green Bay, green Bay Packers are either seven and a half or eight and a point, eight and a half point favorite, depending upon where you look at it. I really try to get eight and a half here. Because I'm going with the Washington football team here, plus eight and a half is the best bet. My numbers have this more of a five and a half point is what the spread should be here. Okay, so for this game, this is really about what you think of the Green Bay Packers more than what you think of the Washington football team. Uh, the Washington football team is a below average team. I'm accepting that. Okay. I know there are lots of different ways for potential regression for them, and I'm going to talk about those ways, positive regression that they could, they could find going into this game. But at a certain point, we get into, you know, the boy who called regression. You know, you, every week you're like, oh, the, the Washington's going to regress, Washington's going to regress, Washington's going to regress, and it just has never, hasn't been happening, really, uh, other than a lucky game against the Falcons where they ended up winning, even though my numbers would have said they were the, the worst team weeks ago. So it's not really as much about them, although it is a little bit about them, and I'll talk about it later. It's more about the Packers. Who are the Packers, right? They have had the 24th schedule as far as strength of schedule. So pretty easy, right? A top 10 schedule as far as how easy the schedule has been so far. They are 5-1. and one. They only have an 8-point differential. So they're 5-1, and one, but their point differential this season is only 8 points. If you look at the teams they played, it's, again, not a murderer's row here, right? The Saints, who destroyed them, who have been up and down at best. The Detroit Lions, who now are starting to look worse and worse as the season's going on. The San Francisco 49ers, who are somewhat questionable. The Pittsburgh Steelers, very up and down. Cincinnati Bengals, who have done well, don't get me wrong, uh, but again, they had to barely win that game after a ton of different missed kicks, and I don't think the the Bengals may be a little overhyped right now. And the Chicago Bears, who you know, decent team, but nothing great, right? Despite that schedule, very uninspiring schedule, only eight point differential so far. Now, I'm not judging them only on that. Like we only judged the Packers on how they performed this year 
this line would be way, way lower than that because they've been pretty average as a team despite being 5-1. and one. But I'm not judging them just on that. We have a prior, not only on the team, but on Aaron Rodgers. We know that they're, they've been injured, especially in the offensive line. David Bakhtiari could be back this year, which is going to be helpful. So we're giving them credit for being a better team than what they've shown us so far this year. But the thing is, when talking about Aaron Rodgers and what we should expect for him in this season, I don't think we can quickly say he's going, he's, he's going to play like the MVP Aaron Rodgers that we saw last season. We got a little bit of a taste of that last week. But even then, there were some fits and starts. Okay, There were some big plays. It wasn't necessarily as much of a high success rate offense as we saw the previous year. Uh, he's taken some sacks. He's done some other things that he wasn't doing as much in the past. He's starting to do that again. He's not playing as well under pressure. He played well under pressure last week, but he was not playing well under pressure previous weeks. A high sack rate when he's been pressured. So for that reason, we have to say, yes, Aaron Rodgers was the MVP last season. Yes, he's a great quarterback, but his, his efficiency, his EPA per play in 2019, he was 12th. And in 2018, he was 14th. Okay, so do I think he's a 12th or 14th type of quarterback? No. Do I think he's the MVP type of quarterback? No. I think he is solidly, you know, probably like fifth sort of quarterback right now. You know, maybe more like somewhere between six and 10 with all of these guys now jumping into the top, like Dak Prescott, who looks better this year, like Kyler Murray, who looks better this year. Um, So a lot of different players who could be now above Aaron Rodgers. And I think it's fair to say he's somewhere between the starting to look diminished Aaron Rodgers, where he, where he was in 2018 and 2019, and the MVP Aaron Rodgers in 2020, where everything went perfectly for them. And let's talk about the regression. I know, like I said, you don't want to be the boy who called regression for the Washington football team here, but there are a lot of avenues for positive regression here for the football team. Uh, first off, again, I said that Rodgers did not perform well under pressure this year until last week. Uh, Washington football team, second in their pressure rate, second highest pressure. So, so they're, they're getting a ton of pressure. They're 14th in fast pressure. So some of it has been delayed. So they're not necessarily the best at getting there super quickly. But if you look at how much, how many points that they've gained or the, or the offenses that they've played have lost via sacks, 29th in the NFL. So being able to translate that second best pressure rate into actual value, sack value, they've been, you can almost be as poor. They're the second best in getting pressure. They're the third worst in getting value on sacks. Some of those pressures are going to start turning to sacks. Some of those pressures are going to start turning into valuable sacks like fumble, like strip sack fumbles going forward. Um, I've talked about this before for them, but it continues, and that is, the defense has given up 16 third and fourth down conversions more than what would have been expected based upon down and distance. The next closest is nine for the Browns going into this week. So they almost have double the, the second worst team in the NFL in this category. Uh, and they've had a top 10 strength of schedule. I mentioned earlier how the Packers have had the 24th. They've been in the top 10. So they've had a difficult strength of schedule this year. They played a little bit better than some than maybe what the score indicated last week, too. So, yeah, you're going to need Taylor Heineke not to give up turnovers. You're going to need maybe a little bit of a 
muted performance from Aaron Rodgers. You're going to need some of this positive regression finally to happen for the Washington football team. But again, at eight and a half points, that's a lot of points. You're over the three, you're over the six, you're over the seven, you're even over the eight. So, you know, at the end of the game, if you can get this eight and a half, it'll also maybe save you at the end of the game. If, you know, if the football team's down by two touchdowns and they go for two uh, down eight, don't get it and lose by eight. You can still get a win here. So this is, this is the best bet for me. I don't have a lot this week on a, on a, on a shorter schedule. I only have three. So this is one that I would definitely book in though, is the football team plus eight and a half at the Green Bay Packers. Okay, and the rest of the morning, I don't have a lot to say. I want to touch quickly on Deshaun Watson when it comes to the Miami Dolphins and these rumors there. I don't really see, I mean, maybe this will happen, but it just seems very strange. None of this has been resolved all summer long when I wrote an article saying that the Dolphins should consider using the number three pick on a quarterback. I got piled on about, we can't give up on Tua, you can't throw away Tua, you can't do whatever. And now, like, Tua's played two whole games. He started another where he left very, very early. Two whole games, and now they're you know ready to toss him aside. I mean, he does look limited, and that's why I thought about another quarterback there, but we'll see. I mean, I'll say I do have a lean on this game of the Falcons at the Dolphins. It's one of those games where optically, I think most people are saying, how could the Falcons be a two-and-a-half-point favorite? And I do have Miami as being the better team, slightly better team, but the problem is when you're between the threes, right? You're just not getting a ton of value there. So I'm not going to pick it. If you, if you really wanted to take the Dolphins plus two and a half, I'd be fine in this circumstance. I think you're going to hear a lot of people recommend that because it just see, sounds like have the Falcons really proven that they can, that they're worth this amount, but I'm not, it's, it's not, it's not enough of a edge in my system to, to do anything, but I just want to hit on that Deshaun Watson stuff really quickly. Okay. Let's talk about the second best bet that I have. Okay, Chicago at, at is the game is Chicago at Tampa, Tampa Bay. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 12 and a half point favorites, 47 over under. My number has this more like nine. So the best bet here is the Chicago Bears plus 12 and a half. Why? Why would you do this? Well, this is really more about the Bears than it's about the Bucks. Yes, it's about the Bucks that, you know, they didn't, the, Richard Sherman's out, they have some guys returning. Well, I think Winfield Jr. is returning from his, from his concussion, so they have some problems on the back end. I'll give you that. Um, they've been playing extremely well offensively. I don't know. I think there's a little bit of a chance for that to re- regress a little bit here, hopefully, for the Bears. So some of that is about the Bucks, but most of this is about the Bears. And I might be a little bit too much on hashtag team film fitting a narrative here, um, although my numbers are not on hashtag film, and they, they, still, they still point to Chicago here, plus 12 and a half. But I thought Fields played pretty well last week. Now, his grade wasn't great. We had him graded in the 60s. He was not great for his passing grade. But that was highly influenced by two turnover-worthy plays that he had. One of them ended up being an interception. Both of them were 50 air yard throws. That The one where it actually was intercepted, Fields, I believe, thought he had a free play and maybe should have have had a free play. It looked like a, a... the defensive lineman at least moved, but maybe not over into the neutral zone. And another one, the defender couldn't get both feet in behind out the back of the end zone. So not ideal to throw those interceptions. The first one was on third down also. Uh, Oh, not an interception. Sorry, not not ideal to throw those turnover-worthy plays, the first one being an interception. But 
we graded him kind of harshly on those, maybe a little more harshly than he deserved. And another thing about Fields, not even looking at the results necessarily, but looking at the team and how they used him, their their passing rate under expectation was only 5% under expectation that game versus it had been in the 10, 15% range. It had been massive in the earlier games. So they let Fields play a little bit more. And I thought he acquitted himself very well. He was throwing the ball down the field very, very well. Um, he's going to have to do that in this game. You cannot run against the Buccaneers. No teams do. Teams are passing at a rate of 10% above expectation against, against the Buccaneers this year. So this is a game where Fields is going to have to use, he's going to have to pass. And I thought that he displayed that. Although there is some chance that this would just be a poor matchup generally because if they make Fields throw a lot, he could be under pressure a lot. I mean, he has taken a lot of sacks. So I'll give you that. His, he has a 13% sack rate, which is near the end of uh, the top of the NFL. But at least he's mitigating that sack rate a little bit by the fact that he was that he's scrambling more often. Uh, I think he scrambled five times last week. He picked up some first downs. He's been quick and decisive in those scrambles, in my opinion, from what I saw. So that's going to be another key is getting out there and scrambling uh, to mitigate some of the decision-making that needs to happen with the pass rush that's going to be significant for the Bucs, right? Because they're not going to be able to run the ball. Um, one other thing that I'll mention here is that the positively graded plays were pretty high for Fields. Again, in a, in a game last week where he was throwing the ball a lot, he had about a 30% positively graded play rate on his dropbacks. And if you look at that versus, you know, what does that mean, right? Lamar Jackson leads the NFL at 31% this year. So we had an NFL leading type of performance, which is masked by a couple of these turnover-worthy plays, which I do not think were actually that bad, and was masked by the fact that they lost the game. Um, but he had a solid, solid performance. And I feel good about him going forward, his ability to, yeah, take a sack sometimes. Because a lot of these sacks he was taking were on third and very long. Uh, take a sack sometimes, but also scramble and use his legs, which he's going to need here. And 12 and a half is just a ton of points uh, against any team. And I love the Bucs. I have them as the highest rated team, the highest strength team in the NFL. So even having them as the highest strength team in the NFL, I just do not see that amount uh, playing at home. They could pile it on. It could be a perfect matchup with bringing pressure against Fields, who ends up looking lost. That could definitely happen. But I have some faith in how Fields looked last week. If they use max protection for him to potentially throw the ball down the field, which is good, stretch things out a bit, and then also use his legs to scramble. Okay, before I get into the last of the best bets here, let's talk about Western and Southern. Whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear Chris's old, want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Monday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Now you can ask either or both. And every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com backslash ask Chris. And that's C-R-I-S, Chris. One more time, that is westernandsouthern.com backslash ask Chris. If you're watching on the YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, 
you can rest assured on game day. Okay, the last uh, best bet here for me, and this is one that's a little bit too popular. I've heard some people, other people talking about it, so it makes me nervous immediately. Uh, fade the noise, fade the crowd. But my, I got to go with the numbers here. I'm a, I'm a cold-hearted spreadsheet robot, and I must go with the numbers. And it is the Colts at the San Francisco 49ers minus four is, is the spread for San Francisco 49ers. It's a 44 total. I have this as more being one. So slightly favoring San Francisco. So I'm going to make the Indianapolis Colts plus four a best bet. Now, there are some factors in here which play into that one number. So I am accounting for these things. Don't think I'm not accounting for these things. Number one. Colts, you got to travel, big travel that's going into it. Number two, 49ers, they had the week off. They were coming off of a bye. Jimmy Garoppolo's back in. It seems like all that stuff's played in. Uh, All the stuff's put into the system. T.Y. Hilton being 50-50 could be a bigger deal than some people think. I don't know if there's been an update. By the time you listen to this on Friday, there may be an update. I'd I'd look out for that. I'd look out for that. Um, Because we saw the opening up of the offense that happened last week a little bit the week before but the week before was more of a jump ball to Michael Pittman but we saw T.Y. Hilton and Paris Campbell help give a bit of that deep threat for Carson Wentz who needs that I mentioned in the review he was hurt by Torrey Smith leaving and then Deshaun Jackson's injuries when he played there you know Carson Wentz is starting to make some big time throws he has seven big time throws over the last three weeks only one turnover-worthy play where he only had a few big-time throws. For He only had, I think, three big-time throws in the first three weeks combined. So he's starting to make those big plays, but he needs that deep threat. And Hilton said he's 50-50 is the last thing I heard. Hopefully he'll play. That's a somewhat of a big factor because they don't have that field stretcher guy without him. Uh, there's a funny thing that happened this week. This is more of a, a Twitter thing than anything else. But I sent out a tweet, which I knew would be a little bit provocative, which said that Carson Wentz had the 11th highest PFF passing grade this year ahead of Stafford, Mahomes, and Josh Allen. So, of course, you know, some people picked up on it. I think it was probably more Bill's Mafia than anyone else. And then what's good about my Twitter is I have the people who don't follow me muted, so I don't get notifications for every idiot. Uh, no offense. Actually, no offense. Um, who is who is tweeting at me? So I didn't even see that this thing was getting dunked on by a lot of people. Um, but anyway... Let's give Wentz some credit, okay? Right? He has been playing well. He Last three weeks, he's first in yards per attempt. He's, he's near the top in big-time throws. He only has one turn of a worthy play. Uh, he hasn't been taking as many sacks, but his sack rate is still a little bit higher. So this kind of gives you a perspective on why Wentz's grade is, is so good. So I do think he's a little, probably a little bit overstated where he is right now in our grades. One, it doesn't, throw, it doesn't have a lot, a lot of turn worthy throws this year, which helps. Two, he has a fairly high sack rate of 8%, but we don't ding him that much for that. And, you know, he's turning on these big-time throws. So that's all put him forward here. Now, I think from a matchup perspective, the Colts' run defense has been really strong. Uh, best defense in the NFL as far as their success rate and uh, efficiency that they're giving up, even when we make some adjustments for opponents. Which remember, they played the Ravens, they played others, they shut down the Ravens' uh, running attack in that game, but Lamar Jackson went ham on them. So... In this game, if they can shut down the running attack, and then we have Jimmy G coming back in here off of an injury, they can maybe force him into to some mistakes. So I think this is going to really be a play where if Carson Wentz can continue to not turn the ball over, which he that's what he's been so good at this year, one turnover-worthy play, uh, no turnovers so far this year, 
they're going to get, I think, a turnover from Jimmy G in this game, especially if they can stop the run. Um, so again, the three main keys here looking into this before maybe you click the button to bet on this one is T.Y. Hilton. Is he going to play or not? What do we hear about on Friday? His his chances there. And uh, also in the actual game itself, look for a turnover. Look for the Colts defense to stop the running game for the, the 49ers. And I think that'll really play well into Indianapolis, where again, I don't have those being the better team. But when we get four points, that's a huge to get a, to get over three points. Getting four points is really huge for this play this best bet okay before we get to my last segment here uh on structure and the uh franchise management that i'm getting from this very interesting Paul vulgaris interview i want to hit about manscaped the last sponsor here it's football season you know what that means we're going for two here with the sponsors of today's show manscaped Join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by using code PFF at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. The brand new lawnmower 4.0. This fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. 7,000 RPM motor, 4,000K LED spotlight, waterproof, everything you could possibly want here. Get 20% off free shipping with code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code PFF. All right. So this Bob Volgares interview, for those who did not listen to it, it was on the ESPN Daily. Uh, look for the Twitter feed of Pablo Torre and others have been sharing it. I shared it myself. I love Pablo and I think he's probably a friendly interview for Bob. So that's why he decided to do it there. For those who don't know about Harala Bob, uh, he... Said a lot of, he's had a lot of Twitter followers because of the fact that he's a pretty well-known known sports better within the NBA, specifically. He's been good at finding trend analysis. He's a, also a poker player type of guy. He's definitely an analytics and numbers guy. He, was, he, had been, he says in this interview that he had been consulting. Cuban asked him to do some consulting, and he was interested in it because he kind of got bored with the grind of betting and he didn't say this but i assume in his case like most betters case almost any betters case that you'll talk to things have gotten more difficult also as more and more smart people quantitative people have gotten into uh sports betting the books have gotten smarter uh setting their lines and, and whatnot so that's probably part of it too there's probably a little less of an roi than there was in the past so he took up this opportunity to do some consulting i believe he said he'd been doing it for a couple of years before he formally came on as the director of quantitative research and development for the Dallas Mavericks. Okay, so what was interesting about this, and I'm going to get a little bit less into the he said, she said sort of thing. There was an athletic article that came out a number of months ago where clearly it looked like the general manager, Donnie Nelson, son of famous Hall of Fame coach, I believe Hall of Fame coach, I might be overstating myself, but I believe Hall of Fame, it should be Hall of Fame coach, uh, Don Nelson. And he seemed like he was kind of probably the source or people friendly with him for his source for a lot of things because the power struggle seems to be between Harala Bob, Bob Volgaris, and Donnie Nelson and the traditional guys there. And to a lesser degree, Rick Carlisle, who was the, I believe, also Hall of Fame here too, head coach for the organization, right? It seemed like Carlisle and Bob got, got along okay. It was probably more on the, on the Donnie Nelson side of things. So there's a lot of disputing the particulars of did this conversation happen? Did that conversation happen? Were you dictating lineups? Were you dictating who was being traded or not? All this stuff. Like, ah, I'm not interested in that sort of stuff. He says, she said. 
What I am interested in is how this dysfunction that was happening within the organization, how it was really an inevitability if you think about how this and many teams are structured. And this is going to go beyond the NBA. This goes into the NFL also. So with these organizations, one of the main problems is there are really no checks on the power of the owners. Okay. In corporations, if you're a public company, of course, there are many different public equity, right? Company. There are many different requirements that you have. You have to have a board of directors. You have to have um, fiduciary, you know, system set in. You have to have compliance. You have to have all these things, which are going to whittle away at the power of even people who who have a controlling stake in the company. Like Mark Zuckerberg still has a controlling stake in Facebook. Yeah, you're not telling Mark Zuckerberg what to do, but at least there are structures in place, right, to mitigate some of his power, especially. Well, even if he still has the power, he at least has to contemplate what he's doing a little bit more because of these reasons. Or there are people that he has to, you know, there's a, there's a formalized system for who has his ear, who's giving him advice, things like that. Even smaller companies, even private companies, as long as they're raising debt, especially in a public market, if they're raising debt. So even if they they have private, they're not, their equity is not owned. If they're raising debt or even if for banks, you know, if they're they're borrowing money from banks because companies are not running on their own cash, right? You don't want to have to have all this cash on hand. Everyone has a revolver or, or some sort of bank loans that they're getting. Even they are forced through that process to have some sort of checks and balance on what, on what they're doing. Um, teams don't have that. Even if teams have loans, they're not going to have that because checks and balances on how they're operating as a basketball team is secondary. Like the banks don't care about how they're operating as a basketball team. They care about getting their money back. So they care about the finances of the team generally. So it's a whole separate entity. So within the actual basketball operations or football operations of a team, there are not these systems of, of, of uh, checks and balances or especially checks on the owner's power. Now, because of that, it becomes a situation with whoever has the owner's ear has the power has the power to not be fired, has the power to make decisions. And in this situation, from how it was described by Bob and even how it was described by the sources in the Athletic article, it sounded very clearly like Bob came in as an outsider. He didn't ingratiate himself to people like Donnie Nelson. Uh, He was told by Mark Cuban, I want you to mix things up a bit, according to him. But when that happens, if Donnie Nelson sees that Bob has the ear of Mark Cuban, because of the fact that there are no structures in place for him to push back against that, because there is no consensus, because there is no like board or something that Cuban's consulting with, uh, that's and that's also informing Cuban as part of this formalized process, or all these conversations going on probably behind people's backs and whatnot, he's going to feel threatened and he's going to work against them. And that's when you're going to have these toxic conflicts in here, right? Um, so the, the, your incentive is to keep your job, your incentive is to gain power within an organization. And the way these organizations are structured, you are then incentivized to shoot down the other person who has the owner's ear because there are no checks on what the owner is going to do. Okay? So it's all about incentives. We cannot expect people to act in a uh, cordial way, in a correct way, in a moral way necessarily if their incentives are not aligned. We just can't. So we want to always align incentives. You cannot rely upon the goodness of people to to work in this collegial way. Now, 
what I thought was especially interesting about this is it seems like perhaps Donnie Nelson figured out, and it's pretty smart, is that the best way to influence and to try to shoot down Bob in this situation, try to win this power struggle, was not by making a more convincing argument to Mark Cuban, but was to turn the players against Bob. To turn the players against Bob Volgaris as the nerd guy from the outside. Bob was mentioning often how the players are assuming that he's the one who's keeping them out of the lineup. He's the one who's saying they should be traded. He's the one who's saying they shouldn't have been drafted. Luka Doncic, in particular, having problems with Bob, where he says he didn't know where it was coming from. He was never telling, you know, Luka anything negative or felt anything negative about Luka. The reason he wanted to work there is because he wanted to work with Luka. But the fact that Luka was turned against him is extremely important because, especially in the NBA, these guys have the most power of anyone, these players, right? They can conceivably walk at some point. Even in the NFL, the, the player, even a quarterback who you think would be on that same level and may be on the same level, has more difficulty getting someone fired because with the franchise tag and other things, it's extremely difficult to leave the team. These NBA players can leave. So because of that, it seems like as part of this power struggle, uh, someone like Luka Doncic was weaponized by maybe the anti-Ball Vulgaris forces to push him out of there. And that's kind of what ended up happening, it seems like, even though he did sign an extension before Bob actually left the team. Um, so again, that's something where we're not going to see it as much on the in the NFL side because the players have less power, but they're gaining a little bit more power as time going on. So that's something that can happen there. But the real key here is you have to have structures built in. And I know owners are never going to want to mitigate their own power, right? But by not having checks on their power, they're actually feeding into this toxic atmosphere going on below them. If you don't have the proper structure for who gets the owner's ear, who has the influence, how decisions are made, uh, all these sorts of things. And I think that even with a smart owner like Mark Cuban, we could see the problems there, especially when you bring in an outsider where there's just an an assumption that you're on the opposite side that you're working against each other rather than working for each other, which I think is something like the Browns have really been good at this year by bringing in Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski, where I think they, they feel like they're, they felt a kinship to start off with. They weren't against each other as maybe Sashi Brown and Hugh Jackson were before, but you can't always rely on that. It's always good to have the incentives aligned also. And the one last thing I'll say about this interview is, I guess Bob Volgaris does not plan on working for an NBA team again, because rarely do you see something like this where someone would come out and be so open about everything. Normally you just get a another article where you'd be the unnamed source pushing back against everything. So I appreciate that he came out and did this interview and I found it very fascinating. So go ahead and listen to that on the ESPN Daily. But that's it for me this week. Thank you everybody. Go ahead, rate and review the pod. Use promo code unexpected for your subs at PFF. And otherwise enjoy the weekend of football and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>